Well, today we continue in our sermon series on the book of James. And today we'll be looking at James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. And I'm going to be reading the passage from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible, The Message. So James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good. You take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more, sh you can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that, but what good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that the works are works of faith? The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that got Abraham named God's friend. Is it not evident that a person is made right with God, not by a barren faith, but by a faith fruitful in works? The same with Rahab, the Jericho harlot. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping, helping them escape, that seamless unity of believing and doing what counted with God? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing, a corpse. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, our souls inspire. Enlighten us with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. Be with us, we pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Life's most persistent 
An urgent question is, what are you doing for others? We should be bridging the gap between practice and profession, between doing and saying. Those are words from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Some of you may have seen the movie Selma, which is based on the voting rights marches from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, led by King and other leaders back in 1965. Well, there's a scene in that movie where Alabama state troopers follow a group of protesters into a restaurant. And there they beat up and shoot a young black man named Jimmy Lee Jackson. At Jackson's funeral, King addresses the congregation and asks, who murdered Jimmy Lee Jackson? Every white preacher who preaches the Bible and stays silent before his white congregation. Every Negro man and woman who stands by without joining this fight while their brothers and sisters are brutalized, humiliated, and ripped from this earth. King is saying that words by themselves are not enough. Words are important, but they need to be backed up by action. Where did he get this idea? Well, I believe he got this idea from the Bible, including the passage we read today from James. And where did James get this idea? From his brother, Jesus, who said things like, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we do these things? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, just as you did it to one of the least of those who are members of my family, you did it to me. Words without action are empty. As Eliza Doolittle says to her two suitors in the musical My Fair Lady, words, 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 is that all you blighters can do? Don't talk of stars burning above. If you love me, show it. Or as Edgar Guest once said, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. We all know this, this to be true, right? We say that we need to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. We need to practice what we preach. Some of you may know that I am a huge comic book fan. So my favorite line from the comic book movie, Batman Begins, is when Bruce Wayne is told, it's not who you are underneath, it's what you do that defines you. Now for God, word equals action. God says, let there be light, and there is light. But for humans, it's very different. We know that we wouldn't listen to someone if we couldn't see or hear that somehow his or her words had become flesh and that they were more than just airy talk, talk, talk. 
Love is an event, not just an emotion. If you tell someone you love them, but you never get around to showing it, then don't be surprised if they don't believe you. Talk is cheap. We want more than words. We want substance. So why do we think it's any different with Christian faith? It's clear that for James, the faithful hearing of the word leads to action. In other words, it's not just lip service, it's life service, putting our faith into practice. Now, the book of James is best known for this insistence on the inseparable connection between faith and works. But if this is the theme for which James is best known, it's also the most controversial and misunderstood part of the whole letter. This section of James, more than anything else, prompted the great reformer, Martin Luther, to say, I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove. Jimmy, of course, being James, the author of this letter. He also denounced James as being an epistle of straw. Luther's concern was that James, on the surface, seemed to contradict the Apostle Paul's central biblical affirmation, that of justification by grace through faith alone. So, does James contradict Paul? No, I don't believe that he does. As Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Being saved by grace through faith means that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And if we read Paul closely, we'd see that Paul certainly agrees that Christian life should be expressed by deeds of love. Uh, for example, in Galatians 5, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Both Paul and James use the Greek word ergon, translated as work, to show that faith works itself out in loving acts. In other words, faith has a job. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Real faith produces fruit. Now, we don't put our faith in the fruits. We put our faith in the roots, in Jesus Christ. But if faith is not accompanied by action, if it produces no fruit, then it's dead. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer meant when he called, when he called it cheap grace, because it's grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Faith without action is not really faith at all. I was interested to discover that Pepperdine University held a conference recently called FaithWorks. Using the book of James as their guiding text, the point of the conference was to imagine again the life of Christ following where both words and actions glorify the one through whom all good gifts come. Now, I love that double meaning of these faith works lectures. Faith really works. Also, faith produces works. 
uh, note that the order is correct. Faith comes first, and then works flow from our faith. Again, faith has a job. One commentator says that when looking at James and Paul, it's helpful to realize that Paul addresses the starting point of faith, the questions of how one is brought into right relationship with God. James, on the other hand, doesn't address the initial experience of acceptance by God, but the continuing life of the believer. It speaks of works as the fruit of Christian faith. In other words, if we're deeply rooted in Christ, the result is that we'll bear fruit. If we have deep roots, fruit is inevitable. It's helpful to realize that James is assuming that his readers are already familiar with the key tenets of the Christian life. He's most interested in helping believers live the Christian life. Now, although I believe that Paul and James don't contradict each other, it's true that they're not exactly saying the same thing since they're addressing different contexts. Um, Ernest Campbell captures the difference between Paul and James with a helpful analogy. He says, Paul is dealing with obstetrics, with how new life begins. James, however, is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, with how Christian life grows and matures and ages. What James is opposed to is a misuse of Paul's theology that influenced Christians to neglect their obligations to aid their poverty-stricken and suffering brothers and sisters. James doesn't have time for a counterfeit faith that tells what love looks like, but then doesn't do anything about it. You know, near the end of the first century, the Christians in Jerusalem are under intense persecution. The, uh, in fact, the city of Jerusalem falls to the Romans in 70 AD, and James is the bishop of the church in Jerusalem during this time of intense persecution and daily danger. In fact, so not long after writing this letter, James will lose his life because of his faith. James is teaching that there's more to being a follower of Jesus than simply believing in God. Okay, here's one more movie quote for you, okay? Um, in the movie The Matrix, the main character is told there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. We're called to actually walk the path. We're called to take our life and ask Jesus to do something extraordinary with it. It's more than just book knowledge of the scriptures. James says that if theologically agreeing with the scriptures could get you into heaven, if just believing that God exists could save you, then even the demons would be saved. The demons know as much about God as any theologian, but all they can do is shudder at that knowledge. James wants us to know that there's a way in which we're supposed to believe that is crucial. To believe in Jesus is to say to him, Jesus, I want to surrender to you, and I want you to come into my life and to fill me. 
In addition to accepting the doctrines of Christianity, we're called to invite Jesus to make us new persons, to give our lives to him and to put into practice with our lives what we say with our lips. That's how we impact the world around us. As Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon write, discipleship involves joining up, not staying on the sidelines. Jim Wallace of Sojourner's Ministry says that true faith impacts and changes society. It's often risky and costly, but when faith rises up, it can change big things, like bringing about the abolition of slavery, uh, women's suffrage, child labor reform laws, and of course, civil rights. These are all examples of big issues tackled by ordinary people who came alive because of faith. Did you know that not one social reform movement in this nation's history, not one, succeeded without the involvement, significant involvement, of people of faith? As I mentioned before, the movie Selma does a great job of showing how people of faith came together to change an unjust system that denied African Americans their civil rights. Now, it's never just the people of faith. It also always involves other people coming alongside. But it always includes people who put their faith into action. St. Catherine of Siena put it this way. If you are what you're supposed to be, then you will set the world on fire. You know, although Martin Luther disliked the book of James at first, he did later grow to appreciate this book, and he revised his original opinion of it. He said, I think highly of James and regard it as valuable, although it was rejected in early days. Luther also said, where there are no good works, there is no faith. If works and love do not blossom forth, it is not genuine faith. The gospel has not yet gained a foothold, and Christ is not yet rightly known. Remember, faith has a job. There's one other thing about putting our faith into action. When we do so, it's attractive. This past March, I had the opportunity to join UPC's International Disciples Mission Trip to San Francisco. We showed a video about this trip last week, but since many people were gone for Memorial Day and for the All Church Retreat, I wanted to show it again today. I knew God was going to do something great. I knew that I was going to be broken by the people that I met and the relationships that I would form. God, I, I expect you to do great things. And yeah. It was my first time in the U.S. and first time in San Francisco, so I didn't know what to expect. Lord, we are going to a city that you love. 
this generation of international students really wants to serve and wants to have experiences to prepare them for the real world. The hope was to take people to San Francisco into the poorest neighborhood of the city, into the Tenderloin, where they would be exposed to things they were not used to seeing, right? To see homeless sleeping on the streets, to see people dealing drugs right in front of them but to show them that God is actually working in this place. And if their eyes could be open to seeing how God is working in the Tenderloin, their eyes could be open to seeing how God is at work on the University of Washington campus and back in their home countries as well. I think one of the basic things to describe the Tenderloin is obviously the poorest of the poorest neighborhoods in San Francisco. My first impression when I got onto that street was Wow, there are so many homeless people on the on the street. And my first reaction was actually fear. I was I was scared. I was scared. You go from these really nice shops that are two blocks away to um, absolute poverty. It's just really crazy contrast. Some people were already kind of engaging with the people who were sleeping outside at YWAM. And I felt like how can other people do it? In a sense, I was like, I wonder if I would actually do that. If I would be able to step out of what I'm normally comfortable with, take that extra step out. I wouldn't generally describe myself as a bold person. I think the first night we met someone he was, he just wanted money from us, but we we're like, hey, we'll just buy you food. We went to Carl's Jr. and he got him something. And the next thing I knew, I was like, hey, can we pray for you? <laughs> like it was like just natural for me to do so. Um, and I did, and it was awesome. And not only was he blessed, not only was I blessed, but there was another guy who was coming alongside, just kind of observing our group. And he was like, what you are doing right here is awesome, thank you. That's, hey, that's a beautiful thing though that you guys are giving back. That boldness, I can't really explain it without just being like, God, that was you. This is a sketch I did of Thomas. He was a man we met on the hot chocolate run. He told us he was um, in rehab right now. He was really struggling in life at the moment with his addiction. Yeah, he also told me to keep doing what I was doing and keep pursuing art and showing it to the world. Those memories are associated with the sketch, um, which makes it really special. I think for the people who are going home, my hope is really that their experience wouldn't just be, I had such a special time in San Francisco, I will always look back on that fondly, but that it would be a turning point in how they view the world of putting Jesus at the center and learning to see through his eyes so that no matter where they go, they'll be able to see how God is working, especially on the margins, especially in the places where it's hard to see, so that they would be people who can see God is working here and I wanna be a part of it. One of the biggest takeaways from San Francisco trip was the idea of doing a hot chocolate run. We wanted to bring that tradition to the Ave. We would all go out with like four jugs of hot chocolate. We would hand out hot chocolate to anyone who needed it. I think the attitude of helping the needy is something I would like to take back with me 
I now know how to not be so complacent about simply feeling these things for these people and doing nothing with that. Like, because I'm now so convicted, I can't help but do something now. I feel like I've grown more in my faith um, throughout San Francisco trip and also during my time here. In Australia, I think I was in a very controlled environment. My family was there, I knew everyone, but I feel like when you're kind of thrown into the unearned, you have to rely on God even more. This experience has really changed me in that way to trust God more, to really put my faith into practice, which means to know that He will guide me through anything that happens and that He has a plan for me wherever I go. When we take our faith in Jesus seriously and do what God calls us to do, we often find people sitting up and taking notice. Jim Wallace finds that two things happen when people of faith actually say and do what their faith says they should say and do. First, people are surprised. Then they are attracted. Here's the interesting thing about that San Francisco trip. Of the 16 students that went on that trip, one third of them were not Christian. They came because they were attracted to people living out their faith, putting their faith into action, helping the poor. And here's the amazing thing. Today, at five o'clock, one of those students has decided to be baptized into this family of faith. That's what happens when we put our faith into practice. Faith has a job. Let's go do it. Amen. Please pray with me. Loving God, we thank you that your love surrounds us and permeates us and overwhelms us. Your love commands us to love others as you've loved us. You showed your love for us by sending Jesus to be with us, to be sacrificed for us. Help us to show our love for you by sharing it with others, by putting our faith into practice. In Jesus' name, amen.